Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Rosenthal. Nothing personal. Word of the day is Rosenthal, as in Ken Rosenthal. If you want to know anything that's going on inside baseball, you're going to want to follow Ken Rosenthal on Twitter. You're going to see him, listen to him, because he's been doing this every year I was in the game, Ken was in the game, and more. And anytime I needed to learn anything about what was going on with my own team, all I had to do was read Ken Rosenthal's columns and I would know who we were trading for and who we were hiring for manager. I am quite thankful to have Ken Rosenthal here, and so are you going to be. Ken, how are you? Good, David. Thank you very much. Good to see you. I'm a little underdressed, I guess, for this appearance, but hey, you take what you can get, I guess. Well, I assume you're just put, you pulled these clothes out of your already packed spring training suitcase. That's right. My already packed spring training suitcase is sitting, gathering mold and dust right now. Do you have sunscreen? Because you look a little pale. Were you expected <laughs> to be in the sun right now? Well, David, to be perfectly honest, I've lived in the Northeast my whole life. And because I've been going to spring training since 1987, around this time of year, I get a little itchy to get out of the cold. And obviously right now I'm still in the cold and <laughs> might still be in the cold with the rest of the sport for some time longer. Have you not tried to see if you can cover the lockout from Florida? Have you asked the powers that be to let you out of your Northeast hovel and into the light? Uh, David, I try not to be that high maintenance. That would be kind of an egotistical request. And let me go to Florida while everybody else stays and works from home. I don't know if that would work. You can, you can do, wait a minute, on the first day of games on February 26th, when the first game is supposed to happen, you could do a live report from a spring training <laughs> site where there's a padlock and there's no fans and you will be live on the scene. I could help pitch this for you. Well, that might be an idea, but we're not there yet. We've got to get through next week first and see exactly where we are with this situation and go from there. Well, let's talk about where we are because one of the things that we've been doing on Nothing Personal is trying to let people learn what it is to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement, try not to ride the roller coaster. And your job in the media is to report every meeting, you report everything that's going on around the issues. But one of the things that happens when you do that, and, and you're the best at it, but what happens is that fans get antsy, they get upset because they, they feel like billionaires are fighting with millionaires. They feel as though there's no end in sight and all they care about is baseball. How do you weigh how you're going to report on this lockout versus what you should be cautioning fans in terms of timing? The only way to do that is to do your job correctly and report accurately. Now, fans will get upset. You'll hear on Twitter, stop telling us this stuff. It's all bad news. But that's not my problem. It's just like covering a team or writing about a team. If I'm writing about a bad team, 
and their fans get upset. Well, our, you're picking on our team. No, your team is bad. That's the problem. Not me writing about that. It's just the way it is. We have to reflect what's going on. That's our job, whether it's good or bad. So that part of it doesn't worry me. That is just part of it. What is the most difficult thing about reporting on these kinds of things is putting it in context and trying to explain to people what things mean. And that is difficult because the issues are complex. And a lot of times I'm sitting here writing about it and I'm thinking, gosh, this is dry. And it is dry compared to the normal baseball fair that we have on The Athletic and what I talk about on Fox, whatever. But at the same time, this lockout in particular, granted, it's a different era than before with social media and all of the things that are available on the Internet. But it seems to me fans are slightly more engaged or maybe not even slightly, maybe significantly more engaged than they've been on these issues in the past. So you think if you ask, if, if we do Family Feud, 100 people surveyed, top five answers on the board, what is the number one issue that is stopping baseball from being played? What do you think would be the number one issue in the fans' mind? 100 fans surveyed. What is the number one reason why I am not able to watch baseball right now? David, I think you would get a wide variety of answers. And I do think that more fans are attuned to what the owners are making and understand the dynamic and play with the owners better than they did in the past. I remember earlier in my career, 80s, 90s, fans would complain about the players. They're billionaires. Oh, yeah, so they're millionaires playing a little kid's game. What do they have to complain about? Fans, to me, understand or have a better understanding now that it is a situation where the owners are doing quite well. And in recent years, the pendulum has shifted toward the owners, the league, the clubs. And I can't say that's true of all fans. There are a number of fans who blame both sides. There are a number of fans who blame just the players. So I don't know that we have a consensus on that particular question. I don't think Rob did himself any favors during his press conference last Thursday when he talked about how, but with a lot more risk. That caused a bunch of articles to be written, especially about the team that I used to work for and the transaction that I did with Derek Jeter. I can tell you that Derek Jeter would say that is totally correct, that I should have put Bruce Sherman's $1.2 billion in an S&P index fund instead of the Marlins. But I think the example <laughs> was for, for other owners who have owned for longer. And I think Rob should not have said that, but I think that is a huge, important point about this negotiation. I want to touch on it with you because to settle something like this, it's all about leverage. It's all about timing. And what I've been telling the audience is that owners have a much longer investment horizon than players have careers. So is it not true that in all of these negotiations, because certainly in my experience it is, what is your view about who has the most leverage and do you agree it's owners because of their time horizon? I would agree with that. And it's certainly the case. And you are living proof that it's a pretty good deal to have an investment in a baseball team. I think we would both agree in that. And if you look at all the franchises now, even the struggling small market ones, if they sold, they would sold, sell for significantly more than they were purchased for. So the owners do have the runway that players do not. 
There's no doubt about that. Now, for many years, David, and you were in the game at, during these periods, the players held the upper hand. It seemed like they always outfoxed the owners in these negotiations. And it was especially true, I guess, in the 70s and 80s, less true as time went on. But even through the 90s, the players' brain power in the union seemed to be significantly more. Now, the owners caught up and MLB caught up. And you could argue now that MLB not only caught up, but surpassed the union in their negotiating strategy and making these CBAs work to their advantage. So that's where we are now. But in terms of the leverage you're talking about, there's no doubt a player's career is relatively short compared to an owner's lifespan with his team. One of the great ironies to me is that the executive council for the players is made up of so many Scott Boris clients and Max Scherzer has been doing some talking and Max Scherzer is not representative of the players union. And I think that fans may not realize, uh, although if you listen to nothing personally, you do the majority of people in the union will never make it to free agency ever. They're lucky if they make it to arbitration and their focus is on the minimum and on making sure pension benefits, how the vesting works and what their rights are during the course of their small playing career. So I find it strange that the union is choosing to speak through the Garrett Coles and the Max Scherzers of the world. Are you in touch with some of the younger players? And do they have the same intestinal fortitude as it seems the Boris clients do? Well, I have not been in touch with many of them uh, during this time. Generally, in labor negotiations, you speak to veteran players, they have a better feel for it. Younger players kind of just follow along, which is a problem at times. But a couple of points here. One, I believe Travis Sawchick reported this on the score. He's a very intelligent writer, writes a lot of good things and comes up with a lot of good information. He said something like 62% of players in 2019 were those that were making the minimum or slightly above zero to three types. So that forms a significant percentage of the union, that group. There's no doubt about that. But when you're talking about the executive board, you're going to be talking about veteran players. They're the guys who get elected to this because they have a status within the game, as Max Scherzer does, and Garrett Cole, and Marcus Semien, Francisco Lindor, all the members, the eight members of that executive subcommittee, they're pretty accomplished guys for the most part. I think Jason Castro is probably the least accomplished, and he's had a good career. So there is a question about how each subset of players is going to be accounted for in this negotiation. And it's a fair question. Now, it seems to me, based on the proposal so far, the union is trying to certainly account for the top end with the CBT proposals it has made and the bottom end with the minimum salary proposals and the pre-R pool. The question is going to be the middle class, as it's been for a number of years. And I don't know that you can cover everyone. I don't know that you can do something really well for everyone. The union believes that pushing arbitration back to two years, which of course it got off of yesterday to some degree, and that raising the threshold would help the middle class, kind of dragging everybody up. That's debatable. But at the same time, if you're asking me why are veteran players running the union, it's because they're veteran players. It's the same reason they run clubhouses. It's who they are, their stature in the game. Oh, I, I, I think <clears throat> what I was actually asking, I agree that's, that those are the clubhouse leaders and that's how they get in the executive council. But at the end of the day, you need 601 players to ratify an agreement. Yes, and the number you just gave indicates that that's a voting block that I'm going to want to satisfy because that's the voting block that gets to a deal. Right. Now, David, my question has been from the beginning, can the union hold together, not in 
December or January or even now in February. If this thing goes on and checks are at stake, paychecks, and guys start missing money, then it's a different equation. We both know that. It's actually a different equation for the owners too, but the owners are by definition wealthier. And the players, I still have that question, but I will tell you that the anger I have heard from players, and we've seen this on Twitter. It's not like a secret. Not like I'm the only guy hearing this. It's as significant as it's been at any time that I can remember going back to 94, 95. Now, of course, there's been a series of agreements since then. There hasn't been this rancor, but there's a lot of frustration with Manfred. There's a lot of frustration with the ownership proposals and an antipathy that is probably not healthy for this particular negotiation, but it's reality. And I'm not sure that's going to get overcome so easily. Right now, I see this in two ways. So we have about a week to go before it is absolutely crunch time and a deal must be done to have the season start on time. A week is a lot of time. And there were reports last night that owners are flying in next week. Both sides are willing to negotiate day to day. Good. The other side of that is, as Evan Drellick and I wrote, I believe last Sunday, while there is time, there is also no reason to believe, based on everything we've seen so far, that these sides are going to get closer. So I'm not sure what I think is going to happen. I, I don't really have a great feel. I can't tell because, yes, in baseball, the deadlines drive everything. David, you know this. Nothing gets done until the last minute. But at the same time, there is such a way to go, a long way to go, and such philosophical differences here that I'm not sure it's going to get done so that the season can start on time. So I want to get into detail about something you said because I think we can inform the audience that the deadline that you're referring to is the February 28th deadline, which is the day where MLB has said after that day, the regular season cannot start on March 31st. That doesn't make it a deadline. And there's some confusion out there that if there's no deal done by February 28th, that that's it, the world is falling apart. And I would argue that the way both the players and the owners have been acting this entire time, they always knew the deadline was not February 28th, that both sides are willing to miss games at this crucial part in their collective bargaining negotiating history, that we're not going to get a deal until both sides feel that they are at a deadline and their deadlines are the same. And what I'm afraid of and I just think it's fact, is that neither side thinks that starting the season March 31st is the end-all, be-all. And so I'm trying to caution listeners and fans not to worry if a deal is not done by February 28th because I agree with you on one thing on this. A deal will not get done until the last day of the deadline blank. What's the deadline? Is it 120 games? Is it 60 games like 2020? The deadline for owners, for me, and I'm curious what you're hearing from players, there's got to be enough of a representative season that can lead to a full postseason. We learned in 20, you can do 60 games, have a full postseason, because the Dodgers rings are just as nice as my Marlins ring. Is that what you think the players believe as well? Not sure, but we're talking almost about two different things. The deadline to start the season on time. MLB has said it's February 28th. I don't actually believe that. They probably could stretch it a few more days beyond that if they were making progress, just have a shorter spring training. But what you're saying is that 
neither side is particularly worried about that. And I would tend to agree based on what we've seen, right? They're not acting like they need the season to start on time, neither side. I will say this, and I've heard this and written it to some extent, I believe. If the season does not start on time, the entire dynamic changes. Owners are then going to cite a loss of revenue when the free agent market opens again. And they're going to say, guys, sorry, don't have the same money we would have otherwise. We don't even have to cite it, Ken. You don't even have to cite it. You just make smaller offers. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, it's going to happen. And then the players are going to say, okay, you wanted this, this, and this. You want to expand the playoffs. You want decals and patches on uniforms. You're not getting that. So while there is not an actual deadline in the sense that you're talking about, where they believe there is a minimum amount of games to play, right? What is it? Is it 120 for the players? Is it 140 for the owners? Whatever the numbers are. And the TV networks come into play here as well. But what I'm saying is that if the season does not start on time, there will be a ripple effect. There will be other consequences. And it makes this whole thing that much more damaging. And David, you asked me about fans earlier. Fans are ticked off by this right now. We know that, right? That's obvious. NFL just had a great playoff. Jason Stark wrote a great story this week about, hey, what could baseball learn? Well, one thing you could learn is get your sport back on track. The other thing, or one of the other things, is fix your product, which is not even a concern in these negotiations. That's going to be put off for another year. So if you're a fan of this sport and you've got all these entertainment options that you didn't have in 1994 and 95, You're sitting here like everybody else, hopefully at the end of the pandemic, but you've been dealing with this for two years. There is going to be an increased number, in my opinion, increased percentage of fans that say, the heck with this sport. And you know what? Generally, they do come back. I get it. And we've seen this before. But I think there's going to be a significant loss in your fan base because people are not wanting to hear this stuff right now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So I just want to answer your question on why there's no negotiating about on-field product. We talk about that in all the committees I was on, competition committees, strategic plan initiatives, every committee was all about on-field. The plain rules committee, it's all you do. However, there's no way baseball, the owners, were going to put that on the table during a collective bargaining negotiation because you actually don't have to collectively bargain changes you want to make on the field. If the players don't agree to them, no problem. You can wait a year and then do it yourself. So the owners told uh, Rob, don't you negotiate that because we're not giving anything up to get to ban the shift, as an example. That's fine. But the commissioner has had this power that you mentioned. 
a year's advance notice. You tell the union and then you have the right after that year, if you cannot negotiate something to unilaterally implement. He has not unilaterally implemented anything. Why? Didn't want to damage his relationship with the union. Well, how did that work out? And meanwhile, years have passed. Years have passed and the product has significantly gone down in an aesthetic fashion. It's not as appealing as it once was to watch. And I know fans get upset. Don't change the rules. No, sorry. Things have to change. The NFL changes rules all the time. Somehow they survive. So, yes, things have to change. And there was a wasted opportunity on a number of occasions here when Manfred could have implemented the pitch clock and some other things if he wanted. And he chose not to because of the preciousness of this negotiation, which has gone right to the sewer. Do the players who you talk to actually blame Rob Manford? Because I'm trying to explain to people the role Rob Manford has. And I grant you that I was involved in his election. I have a relationship with him. But I have been on him during my during the course of his commissionership plenty on this show. But I'm just curious, like Marcus Stroman calling him man clown. I'm trying to understand if players actually believe that Rob decides unilaterally that which he wants to negotiate and where he's willing to bend and not Do players actually, there's no question. There's no question that he does not have that kind of power. It's not, I don't know what players think. No, it's not even close. The owners run the show and he is their point man. And that's a difficult job in a lot of ways. And he is trying to satisfy the interests of 30 different owners. And David, you know, this, they're a small market. They're a large market. There are all different kinds of interests in that particular group, just as there are different kinds of interests among the players. So that part of it for him is really tricky. I would not want to be him dealing with that. But what I believe the players are reacting to is what you referred to earlier, the front-facing stuff, the press conferences, the comments that he has made, the World Series trophy. That is what they see, and he is their out-front guy. You don't see Dick Moffert out there talking to the media. You don't see any other owner talking to the media. Thank so God. Well, okay. So Manfred... It's a critical role that he has in that sense, because he is the conduit to the public and to communicating with the players. And that is where they draw their anger from. And I would just draw the comparison with Adam Silver. Well, look at the NBA. Now, granted, it's a salary cap league. I get it. But the relationship there, his feel for the players seems to be much better than Manfred has. Uh, They've had work stoppages. They've They've had had work stoppages. But they've so also the, had so is the NFL. Yes. And so is the NHL. But at the same time, the NBA is in a pretty good place right now. I think we would all agree. And you do not see the enmity toward the commissioner that you do in baseball. You do in football, not so much from the players, but from a number of other sources. But that is where this comes from. Do I believe the players completely understand the dynamic with the owners running the show? No, I do not believe they completely understand that. But what they react to is the public stuff. See, what worries me more is that do players understand what Bruce Meyer is doing? Because I understand they may not get what Rob Manford's doing. Bruce Meyer's the lead negotiator for the players, 
and he was brought in. He is the person you bring in when you want to go to court. He is that. He's not the settling type. And owners were aware of that when the union brought him in. The union was aware of that when they brought him in. It's not like they brought in a pussycat and he turned into a cougar during the course of this. It was a purposeful hire. And if you speak to Rob and Dan, they will tell you that the worst day of their career was the day he was brought in because it foretold exactly what's happening right now. I'm wondering whether or not the players themselves were aware of what they were buying when they got Bruce and whether or not they're going to let Bruce take him right off the cliff. That is my biggest concern as it relates to this lockout. That's a fair question. And let's face it, there have been a number of opportunities for the two sides to make deals in the last couple of years, the pandemic shortened season, the DH, a number of different things, and they have not made deals. And the union would say it's MLB's fault. MLB would say it's the union's fault. But until we see Bruce Meyer make a deal, a big one, the CBA, that question will persist and it will be fair. Now, at the same time, people with the union will tell you that the head of the union is always sort of a boogeyman. Going back to Marvin Miller. Oh, my God. Marvin Miller's wrecking the sport. Don Fear wrecking the sport. So it always is helpful for both sides to paint a villain on the other side. Manfred is the villain for the players. Bruce Meyer is the villain for the owners. You hear a lot of things said about Bruce Meyer, that Boris is running the union, all of this, none of which I have found to be true. Otherwise, I would write it. So, in fact, I will say this. If Boris was running the union, hold on, hold on, David. Okay. If he was running the union, I don't know that the strategies would be quite what they are now. I don't know that the minimum salary thing would be as big an issue or the pre-arb thing. Boris wants the CBT up. That's what he wants most of all. So anyway, there are these questions about Meyer. And yes, he has to show he can make a deal and be a deal maker. And Manfred, he didn't say this particularly in an appealing way the other day, but I know what his point was when he said, I'm the same guy in 98. Well, of course, none of us are the same as in 98. But what he was saying was, hey, I've made deals. I've made repeated deals with this union. Meyer, because he doesn't have a track record, he's his first CBA negotiation. He has not shown that he can do that just yet. So I worked with Gene Orza. I worked with Mike. I worked with Don. And I felt total disdain, contempt, anger, hatred, frustration for each of them. But I also had a level of respect. From Mike Wiener? Now, listen, Mike, let me tell you about I've been in more arbitration rooms with Mike Wiener than I ever wished to imagine. His tragic death, way too young, notwithstanding. His brilliance, notwithstanding. You get with him and you are arguing about player salary with him. And he's got one call. God, I love you, Mike, and I miss you. He's got, he buttoned his shirt wrong. His hair is totally messed up. He's got one collar above his ear. One, like His suit is four sizes too small. And it was bought 40 years ago and he throws his pen around so angry with anything you say that could in any way imply or even infer that this player who he's representing does not deserve to be the highest paid player at that position ever that's what mike's position was all of that said he understood a process and he understood at the end of a process is a deal And what I was trying to say about Bruce and you are agreeing with me, and this is where fans should be focused. Bruce can be as tough as he wants because Mike was tough, but Mike always knew what the object of the game was. I'm not sure that the owners 
through Rob and the players through Bruce have the same object of the game. And when that happens, deals don't get done. Again, fair. And until, as I said, he gets a deal done, these questions are all reasonable. Now, they have negotiated or at least they've made offers. It's not like they're sitting there saying no, 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 no to everything. But at the same time, David, I could be the biggest union sympathizer in the world, but I can't just refute this point. He has to get something done to prove that he is a negotiator and not a litigator, which has been one of the raps against him. Well, and, and, and we say rap as though it's pejorative. There is a role right. for people like that, right? There are lawyers yes. you know when you hire that lawyer. That's not a settlement lawyer. That's a lawyer that you're going to trial with. And those types of litigators are important. But the question is, did the players know going in? What I think is going on is the players were Well, but so one upset. thing, David, one thing. He would say also, Bruce Meyer would say, that he has been part of labor negotiations. He, too, has been part of labor negotiations that led to deal deals when he worked for the NHL. So mm -hmm. he would, if he was on this podcast with us right now, he'd say, this is an unfair criticism. I've been part. I, I just, yes, I'm new with baseball and yes, we haven't had the greatest success, but that's not what this is about that. You know, he knows what his role is and it is to get a deal. Now, if ultimately this goes to litigation, which I really don't think it will, but then you have a fair criticism. But again, right now, I'm kind of withholding judgment on all these things because we haven't seen an outcome. We need to see an outcome. I'm more in the observation category than the criticism category because I'm looking at the different uh, proposals back and forth. I'm looking at the issues, and I understand the goal of the players uh, from a macro standpoint is to get more money to younger players because the efficiencies are such that when you're running a team, it was happening way back in the early 2000s when, when I was with the teams. We're trying to find players to, to outperform their contracts. And we learned when you sign older players to long-term deals, what used to be an okay, just throw away the last few years of the deal, owners are less apt or willing to do it. Just look at a deal like an Albert Pujols. I, I've got to tell you a funny Pujols story. When we were negotiating with him in the in 2011 winter meetings. And I remember it well. Yes, you do. And we offered him the 10 years, 205 million, and we thought we had him. I actually slept in the suite of his agent, literally thinking when I opened my eyes, because he had to talk to his wife, yada, yada, yada. We, when we did the math on that deal, we said, we're paying him for 10, we're gonna play him for seven. And the way we ran a team, as I look back, that's not really smart to do. And to throw, because those years come fast, and we started that with Graham Lloyd, the first ever free agent we signed as an eighth inning guy, giving him three million a year for three years in 2000 we said he's a two-year pitcher but we're going to give him four and a half a year for two years but we're going to call it a nine million three-year contract don't worry about year three ironically year three happened when we were no longer with the expos but forgetting that those years come quickly so owners realize that paying players who are older doesn't work so bruce meyer and the players now want to get more money for the younger players from an owner's standpoint they want to pay their employees as little as possible to get the maximum return. How do you argue against that? Your employers do that right now, right? Where you work. Of course. If they every employer find, does that. Every employer does that. Yes. Why is it wrong to do for owners to have young players who perform pay them less than older players who don't perform?
wait, I think you're suggesting that those younger players should be paid more to make the system more efficient. No. Oh, I would pay him more, but not to not to free agency. I like the pre-arb pool. I'm in favor of the pre-arb pool. I'm in favor of increasing the minimum, all of those things. Mm -hmm. But I'm not in any way in favor of overpaying players for their performance and players careers to me are the heart of them is now in their 20s but what well asking, first of all go ahead go ahead i'm sorry i'm just asking you to help me globally understand why is it that the players believe that it is wrong to pay better players less money why is that wrong when that is what every employer is trying to do they're trying to get the same production for less money. I would say, and I hope I'm hearing you right and understanding this right, but I would say it's in the interest of both parties to make the pay system more efficient, pay younger players in their primes when they're producing, as opposed to this example you just cited with Pujols when he was productive, I don't know, for what, two years of that 10-year contract? Yeah, Maybe not even. Story. <laughs> so, okay, so in my view, it makes sense for both sides to get to a system. And it seems that they're kind of agreeing on this, not the numbers, but the concepts. Get players paid earlier, raise the minimums, have the pre-R pool. That's a good thing. And that's something where maybe you get less of these extensions now that are so club friendly and not player friendly. And it starts to balance out the pay scale. I would say everyone agrees with that. Now, the question, of course, is numbers and what are the fairest numbers? That's a negotiation. That should be actually the conversation taking place right now. The beauty of not having a salary cap and salary floor, owners can spend whatever they want. So they don't have to give Albert Pujols that contract. And frankly, those contracts are no, being, no longer being paid out the same way they were before. You're seeing only really a Bryce Harper get a 13-year deal because Bryce Harper is 26 at the time. Tatis, 22 at the time. That is also along the lines of what you discussed. You're paying 13 years for probably seven or eight, whatever the numbers are. But that balance needs to be in effect. It needs to happen. But owners have very shrewdly in clubs with the GMs and the analytics and all that, they've figured this out. they figured out aging curves. They've come to understand that the scenario you're describing is wasteful. So they're no longer doing it and they're not going to be required to do it under any CBA we have here. So I think I want to get to the conclusion of this by telling you what you're saying and what I'm saying is where the players and owners have not yet figured it out that both sides really do agree on the principles of how money and players should work. So it really is just about numbers, which makes me worried because if a negotiation is just about numbers, then deals happen. When you're truly well, negotiating, so we've gone full circle to what is the object of the game for each side. And if it's not the same, then we're gonna have a problem. David, I wrote this at the outset. In fact, I might've written it a year or two ago as well, but I definitely wrote it at the outset. This is not that complicated. The deal to me is a higher CBT, not 245 maybe. Maybe it ends at 245 instead of starting at 245. It's higher minimum salaries. It's this pre-R pool, which is a good idea. I think we would all agree. It's maybe an increase in super twos, increase the percentage a little bit. You get 10 more players in the system. Big deal. How complicated is all this? It's not. 
And the one thing that ticks off both sides is when guys like me write, hey, this relationship is a problem. They don't like each other. And they say, oh, no, it's not about relationship. It's about the deal. Well, I would suggest to everyone that the relationship is a major problem because, again, this is not that complicated. David, I believe that if you took two really sharp GMs and two really sharp agents, not Boris, take him out of the equation, but two of each side, three days, it would take three days. I'm so glad you said this on Nothing Personal because one of the things that I have been preaching is that the biggest impediment to a deal is when emotionality becomes a part of it. And when you are hearing stories about hatred between Dan Hallam and Bruce Meyer, that is not positive from an ownership standpoint, from a player standpoint. And Dan, I brought Dan into the game. He started representing our player, uh, us in arbitration. I plucked him out of Proskauer to do that way back in the day. And so he's really good at what he does. But any sort of emotionality could cost fans, games, and therefore the industry revenue. But what the players need to learn, and this is when I appear owner-friendly, and you said it earlier in the show, and I just want to reiterate it, the owners always get the last word. Because if they lose the deal in certain aspects, believe me, they will just have lower payrolls. They are yes. not it, going it, to write checks that they don't want to write. It's just not going to That's happen. exactly right. It's a zero-sum game. And for instance, I wrote about this the other day. If you raise the minimums and you bring in the pre-R pool and it's beyond where the owners like it. Now, that money is not as significant as the free agent money. We both know that. But someone's going to suffer. <laughs> They're going to pay what they want to pay. And we've seen that over the years. That's the problem. Now, you talk about the emotionality. It's not just Dan Halem and Bruce Meyer. It's the antipathy we talked about between the players and Manfred. It is the perception among some players that MLB wants blood. They want to break them once and for all. This is the kind of thing that always comes up in these negotiations. So there is a lot of emotion here. And in my view, it's not healthy. And again, this is numbers. And all we're seeing right now are the two sides moving 5 million here, 5 million there. <laughs> I've had conversations. We could do better. I've had conversations with Reinsdorf about this. The concept that is always we're accused of breaking the union, like that's ne that was never the object of anybody's game. Oh, we're going to win this deal so much that we're going to break up the players' union. They're not going to be represented. Then we're going to get even more of what we want. I'm not sure that owners actually would want that. I do. Well, I don't think I don't think it's that that per se. To me, what it is maybe is dividing the players to the point where they crumble and they don't get the best deal that they can get. That is, I'm sure, a goal of certain owners. And the question remains, who is going to hold tight here? That's the goal of all of us always was to splinter the union, not break it. Yeah. We use the, we use the verb splinter. But I would also tell you- Splinter, that break- <laughs> no, two different things. Splinter causes some. No, I, I agree. It is Breakage two different is the end. So it's not break. But the players are doing the same on the ownership side. When you talk yes. about yes. screwing with revenue sharing, you're trying to get a block of eight. One thing that you said earlier that we've clarified before, Rob Manford does work, has 30 owners who are his constituents, but he is much more focused on the number 23 than the number 30. Bud Selig wanted unanimity. Yes. 
and there was major fighting yes. in 94, 95 amongst the owners. Rob just wants to count to 23, which is what you need to ratify a deal. So what they're on the lookout for is any caucus of eight that somehow gets together, and the players are aware of that. And when they made their initial proposal with revenue sharing, cutting $100 million from revenue sharing, there was only one reason for that. They were never going to get that. But that was all about seeing if they could get anything inside ownership. Because if you're fighting with them, with yourselves, that means you don't have the energy to fight on every front. And there's a natural alignment, actually, between the high revenue teams and the union. They both want similar things. The high revenue teams want to spend. They don't want to be restricted. The union wants them to spend and not to be restricted. So, yes, there is that aspect of it. And there's no question. This is a test of wills on both sides. Ken, uh, I want to get on to one other thing, but I do want, we do predictions. We do wait to seize on nothing personal. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire here. Uh, What is the day that you predict game one of the regular season will be played? March 31st. Is that because you've written that or is that because you believe that? It's neither. You're asking me to guess, to make a prediction, and I'm making a prediction. I still don't think the parties are dumb enough to have the season delayed. I may be completely wrong about that. So I'm going to take the over. I believe that there will be a delay. There still could be 162. There still could be the players get paid 162 to play 140 as one way to solve some issues going forward. I just don't believe the actual deadline in either side's mind is February 28th. All right, I want to talk you may be for right. a minute. And, and, and I, if you don't want to answer, you don't, but I do want to ask you this. And we've talked about it offline, but I think our listeners are interested. Can you talk for a minute about what it's like doing what you do where you break news by definition? You have sources. You write about things that make owners uncomfortable sometimes. You write about things that make players uncomfortable sometimes. You are there serving a huge function for baseball fans to learn something. But sometimes you get people in positions of power who are less than happy with what you're doing. I'm referring to what happened at MLB Network, and I want to know what your reaction was when you were not re-signed by MLB Network and whether or not you agree that when we sit in owners' meetings and we complain to Tony Petiti and people who have succeeded him and preceded him, when we don't like what we hear or see, do you did you know that that happens, that owners care about what people say on the network? Oh, I was keenly aware of that. Now, I'm not going to talk about what happened at the network, but I'll only say this, that I've done this job a long time. I've done it in different roles. At the Baltimore Sun, I was a beat writer and then a general sports columnist. Then I went to the Sporting News. I was more of a columnist. And over time, I've been kind of a reporter, columnist, hybrid, like so many of us are, and I've been on television. I do the job the way I believe it should be done which is finding out the truths, giving people insight, and hopefully educating is too strong a word, but just making people or helping people understand what different things are going on and shedding light on things that are going on. The Astro Science Dealing story would be a great example of that. So I recognize fully that there are nights, there are days, there are stories that will make people uncomfortable, as you said, that will get me blowback that will occasionally cause relationships to fall apart. I don't like that. I'm not by nature, in my view, a confrontational person at all, but in my professional life, I am when it needs to be done, in my opinion. So 
It is uncomfortable. It's my least favorite part of the job, losing relationships with people I respect and trust. And sometimes you get them back, sometimes you don't. But again, my feeling is there's one way to do this. And you've got to be honest with your audience. You've got to be honest in the way you go about it. And you've got to do the best you can. Not to say for one second that I'm perfect. I make mistakes in my reporting at times that have to be corrected. I take opinions that later are proven to be quite wrong. That's not the point. The point is I'm doing my best. And I think over time, the people who read me, hear me on TV, whatever, they understand that I'm that person. And that person is not going to change. So you would never do a hatchet job. So you wouldn't go into a story saying, here comes the blowback as you're putting words to paper. Or do you know when you're doing a story that, ooh, this one I may have gone too far. When do you, when do you have that epiphany? That epiphany sometimes comes later. <laughs> sometimes it does not come when I'm doing the story. So there are times, yes, when I'm doing something where I know there will be blowback. Of course, that's just the nature of this. But at the same time, I don't go into stories saying I'm going to get this guy. And it's not professional and it's not the way it's done. Now, might something come out that is perceived as personal that I believe is nothing personal? Oh, yes, that does happen. But again, David, I, I will stand by my work over the test of time. And again, I'm not saying it's perfect. It's not. The nature of our business is kind of imperfect. We're trying to write about things each day and put them in the proper context. And it's not always going to be what should it should be. But at the same time, I'm not changing my ways. And that's the issue. I mean, that's, that's where I am, period. Well, if you're not following Ken Rosenthal, then you don't know what's going on in baseball, so you should be. But we can't end this show without talking about my favorite subject. I love raising money for charity. I do all sorts of crazy athletic events to do it. And you do something that gets a lot of attention, but it should get more, and I want to give it more. You wear a different bow tie when you are on TV, on Fox, and it is always for a charity. You and I have talked about it offline, but can you share with the audience, please, what it's all about, why you do it, and how a shtick actually ended up helping thousands of people? Well, I appreciate you saying that. And in truth, it goes back to, I believe, 2012. And David Hill, who was the head of Fox Sports at that time, very strong personality from Australia, just a legend in the business. He basically told the people at Fox or the people below him, I want Rodol in a bow tie for the playoffs. I had never worn a bow tie. I thought it was a ridiculous idea. Of course, I did it. He was the boss. I had no choice. But at the same time, I was not happy about it. And in fact, I remember Joe Buck came to me during those playoffs and said, Hey Ken, uh, you have a different look tonight. And I said, yes. And my family and I are playing this game under protest. <laughs> now that off season, I got done with it. And that off season, a guy named Dahani Jones, former NFL player approached me and said, listen, I have a, an organization, a nonprofit. We sell bow ties that represent different charities. We raise a percentage of the money from the ties that go to these charities. It's a good thing. And I thought, Oh, I never wanted to wear a bow tie again, but in one of my few revelatory moments, I thought to myself, okay, Fox is going to make me do this again. David Hill loved this. 
So I might as well get in front of it. And from there it grew. And I must say, David Hill was exactly right because his thought was to make me stand out. Now, I believed that what or the way to stand out was through my work. That was just how I felt it should be. But he knew that it was television. It's a little bit different. And over the years, it totally has made me stand out. And not only that, it's gone to a point where it's a really good thing. It benefits certain people and certain charities. And I must thank David. David knew what he was doing, as you often did. I love that you do it. Do you choose the charities or does Fox? No, Fox has nothing to do with it. Uh, the charities are chosen by the Bowtie Cause. That's the nonprofit. Now, what I will do is recommend to them one or two a year, and then hopefully they form a partnership. Adam Wainwright's foundation is one we partnered with. Kirk Gibson's foundation. Those are coming from me because I'm bringing them to the Bowtie Cause. But no, it's it's just that. That's the genesis. Well, I hope you don't stop because it raises I'm not a lot stopping. of awareness. There's people who watch the games and they want to know because they'll get in my Twitter and they'll say, what do you think Rosenthal is going to wear today? Which charity? <laughs> and I love that. So please keep doing that. And can, when you're reporting on the lockout, are you? can you wear a bow tie? And maybe we can raise some money even if games aren't being played. <laughs> well, hopefully the lockout ends and my prediction on March 31st is proven correct. That will be a wait to see. Ken, I really do appreciate your time. We will stay in touch throughout this. I'm hoping the next time we sit down, we'll be talking about players and trades and performance and not about lockouts. Thank you, Ken. You're here, David. Thank you. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.